transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the Mojave Desert, and it's a real hot night. That's a real nice night for driving around and across these desert lands. With your radio on, your eyes open for jackrabbits, coyotes, bobcats, mule deer, bighorn sheep, desert tortoise, feral burrows, hitchhikers. guys walking on the side of the road with a wooden cross on their shoulder with a wheel on the bottom. The wheel is cheating. And there's that immense sky all around you and that big yellow moon to the southeast. get out and you walk around a little, you notice bats here and there in the warm summer air. You notice it feels a little humid out because we're coming up on monsoon season. That's when the swamp coolers stop working. And something big goes by and you feel the wind on the back of your neck and then you see the owl swooping low and you can almost see it settling on a branch of a Joshua tree about a hundred yards to your left. Some nights you might see some helicopters from the marine base flying low with all their lights off. If you're inside, the house will start to shake. You get out the cabin and look up in the sky and they're already gone. You might see that one red light blinking in the distance. And sometimes... You see something you can't explain at all. And every now and again, you might be lucky enough to see something that a whole lot of other people saw at the same time and that cannot be easily explained. Twenty years ago, from the eastern end of the Mojave Desert and across the Sonoran Desert from Arizona to Mexico, thousands of people saw what they believed to be an invasion from the skies. It was March of 1997, the 13th. The key witness to 1997's Phoenix Lights events was Arizona's governor at the time, Fife Symington. 
Now he saw what he called an enormous silent black triangle. It passed overhead at low altitude on the night of March 13th. It just felt otherworldly, Symington told CNN. Now, Symington was in his second term when thousands of people across Nevada, to Arizona, to the Mexican state of Sonora, reported seeing massive, silent craft looming over highway traffic, hovering over small desert towns and especially over the vast Phoenix metropolitan area. But Governor Symington did not tell the national media about his otherworldly sighting until a decade later. By which time he was out of politics and immune to public scorn. As a former Air Force captain, Symington could have added tremendously to the credibility of the eyewitness pool and his report may have offered comfort to the vast numbers of Arizona citizens who saw ominous things floating slowly overhead that night. Instead, after weeks of increasing hysteria and a surge of national press coverage, Symington called reporters to the state capitol at Phoenix and played a prank on them. With television crews broadcasting the press conference to both local news stations and CNN, Symington solemnly declared that state officials had found who was responsible for the panic. And then his security detail brought out the alien in the form of Symington's chief of staff in a cheap Halloween costume. There were a few forced chuckles from the press. The national correspondents quickly gathered their things and headed home. The coverage was over. The mystery remained. When asked why he withheld his own sighting for ten years and instead ridiculed those who admitted seeing the craft, Symington blamed his own panic, and he said he wanted to deflate lingering unease that he feared might escalate into a total breakdown of society. As a public figure, he told CNN in 2007, you have to be very careful what you say because people can have pretty emotional reactions. Symington now claims that he did his best to solve the riddle in the skies, but the commanders at Arizona's military air bases told him they were as, quote, perplexed as the other witnesses. The triangle was first seen in the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson, not far from the Groom Lake test sites known as Area 51. Witnesses next saw the mysterious ship over the Prescott Valley, and then it began its widely seen northwest to southeast crossing over Phoenix and the desert beyond. It was last reported over Sonora, Mexico. A second event, which was later explained as military flares released over the Estrella Mountains south of Phoenix, 
began more than an hour after the large triangular craft had crossed the sprawling city and suburbs. As word of the sighting spread by word of mouth and local media, throngs of people went outside to search the night sky for mysterious lights. And they were rewarded with a string of fizzling golden orbs familiar to anyone who lives within view of a southwestern military base. The easily explained flares were conflated with reports of the giant crafts. The governor paraded a Halloween costumed employee before the assembled media, and the Phoenix Lights became another part of American folklore to be endlessly rehashed by the cheaply made paranormal documentaries that long ago replaced historical films on cable television. As for the black triangles often seen hovering over desert highways to this day, they are usually said to be secret military aircraft why they are so brightly lit and flown so regularly over roads and towns for decades now is a mystery that has never had a satisfactory explanation. But if you travel the old Mojave Road along Mannix Wash, just west of Afton Canyon, on the edge of Mojave National Preserve in California, you'll find similar black triangles upon the scorched rocky mesa just above the historic trail. These dark triangles are geoglyphs, or intaglios, made long ago by those who traveled this ancient highway. When you head up to the high desert from Los Angeles or Palm Springs, you ascend State Highway 62, which twists and turns up a boulder-walled canyon until you're over the hump and rolling into Morongo Valley, home of the San to Snow National Monument that stretches from the top of San Gorgonio to the Joshua Tree Wilderness with Big Morongo Canyon Preserve in between. There's the big yellow sign for the Cactus Mart, too. And that's your sign that you're officially in the high desert. We paid a visit to Nicole Holland, owner of the Cactus Mart. My grandfather left uh, Detroit, Michigan and moved to Landers and homesteaded in a little tiny cabin out there off of Ricci Road. I'd say in the late 60s, early 70s. So, as a kid, we would come out here for summer break and visit. And so we've been coming out here since then, when it was really nothing going on in the 80s. Um, and then we finally moved all the way out here in 91 and took care of them. So yeah, we've been out here a long time. I love it. In my early 20s, I started working in landscape construction in the low desert. And uh, that was my background. We were building golf courses and working in country clubs and doing um, new model construction in the landscape design field, which I love. I love plants. I've always been driven towards plants. I don't know why. I don't know where exactly it comes from. Probably from being in the desert and you just, you know, you have sunshine 350 days a year. 
everything will grow, everything is always in bloom. You know, there's always a blooming season at some point in the desert, whether it's winter blooms, summer blooms, spring blooms, there's always something blooming in the desert. And I was always gravitated towards that. So when I had an opportunity to start with a landscape construction business in the low desert, I was probably like 23 or 24 years old. I took it. You know, you realize uh, as you get a little bit older, you're developing land that probably shouldn't have been developed. You know, and uh, there was a bit of an ignorance there in my younger days. So I started realizing I wasn't really fond of us ripping out beautiful land for a golf course. One day, I was living here. I moved here to town in Morongo back in like 2008. And I always came to the Cactus Mart. It's Cactus Mart's been around forever. It's been around since the 60s. Everybody knew Cactus Mart. And I was a local and I shopped here and um, I enjoyed it. And the owners knew me and they knew I lived in town. And they were getting ready to want to retire. We discussed it and it just kind of fit. It just, everything fell together and fell to place. And I got to uh, buy the beloved Cactus Mart. And it was super, really exciting. I was really grateful. I was really grateful. I got to do something now that made more sense for me to actually work with plants that mean something, that are bringing the birds and bringing the monarch butterfly garden that we planted and educating people. And it's a whole different, it's a whole different feeling than when you're just landscaping for aesthetics. Now you're landscaping for a purpose. Since I can remember, since I've been coming out here, the high desert has always been very mindful of their environment. They're not wasteful. They really aren't. I really don't go to very many houses that have lawns. The desert is full of color. All the plants have beautiful colors and the smells, you know, the sage smells. People are drawn to that. And cactus alone. You walk through and you see just an ordinary looking cactus and then it has this giant bloom coming off of it and it's amazing, you know, and then you have the bees that gravitate towards it and, and then you have our chickens and the cats and <laughs> everyone adores the cats, the store cats. Uh, Butch and Sundance are about six years old now. Someone brought them into the store and everybody got adopted out except for Butch and Sundance. Can you even believe that? And they became the store cats. The chickens help with insects. Anytime you move a pot or you move a tree, they, they're right on it. They're right on it. They're, they're there cleaning, the, cleaning up the insects around it. They're amazing. They're amazing. Okay, as a child, I had a love-hate relationship with the desert. <laughs> probably like anybody in the 80s growing up out here. There wasn't much for us to do. We lived out, you know, when we were staying out in Landers, uh, there really wasn't much to do. And driving um, Old Woman Springs Road, I would always get car sick, you know, and you're in the heat. You're not used to that kind of heat and stuff. So I really wasn't truly fond of the desert growing up as a child um, until I got into my later teens and early 20s. Then you start realizing the desert is such a beautiful place. I get to live here. So, and I get reminded of that every week, 
when people are out here vacationing to remind me that I live in a place where people pay to come and stay for a week. We have to live within the desert. We don't adjust the desert to our needs. That's how I feel about it. I mean, there does need to be, you know, a certain amount of respect shown for the desert and the wildlife. And definitely out here, you can buy a lot of land and you can can get definitely, you know, weird out here if you wanted to. My name is Nicole Holland. I live here in Morongo Valley and I am the owner of the Cactus Mart. And now it's time for the Desert Oracle mailbag. Jeff Callahan writes from Flat Rock, North Carolina. What's the deal with Joshua Tree and Graham Parsons? Well, Jeff, it's a long story, but I'll tell you the short version. Graham Parsons was a holy fool. One of those rare and exasperating characters who bring beauty and grace to the world, but must pay for this through buffoonery and self-destruction. There is usually heartbreak at the root of such stories, and that was very much the case with Ingram Cecil Connor III, born to charming and wealthy and hard-drinking southern gentry. His father committed suicide when Graham was just a boy of 12 years old. His mother remarried. Graham took his stepfather's last name, Parsons. And then his mother died from the bottle six years later, the very day that Graham graduated from high school. By this time, he had performed music for many years, trying everything from Sun Records-style rockabilly to folk groups inspired by the Kingston Trio. At Harvard, where he was supposed to be studying theology, he discovered LSD and Merle Haggard. Graham Parsons moved to Los Angeles, and he began playing country-western music. And then he wound up joining the jangly folk rock group The Birds, before forming the Flying Burrito Brothers. He and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones had become fast friends, and they would spend time in a speck of a town called Joshua Tree. They liked to get drunk at the Winter Circle Bar, where Crossroads Cafe is today, and they were fond of sitting atop Cap Rock in the National Monument in an old barber's chair that they dragged up there the better to watch the skies for UFOs. Parsons returned to Joshua Tree many times over the next few years, and he occasionally took a break from drugs and liquor to make some beautiful music, which was mostly ignored by the pop audience of the day, but it inspired a brand of rock and roll influenced by Southern Soul and Bakersfield Country. Now, Grant Parsons finally made a solo album worthy of his talents, and he celebrated this with another visit to Joshua Tree. That's when he died in room number eight of the Joshua Tree Inn on the night of September 18, 1973. He was 26 years old. Just two months prior, Parsons attended the funeral of his friend and fellow musician Clarence White who had been killed by a truck driver in Palmdale in the West Mojave. At the funeral, Parsons made it known that when his time was up, he hoped that Joshua Tree National Monument would be his final resting place. 
It didn't quite work out that way, although it was attempted. His corpse was stolen from the airport in Los Angeles, and his friends tried to cremate his body at Caprock. Although his half-burnt remains were eventually returned to his stepfather, who insisted that Parsons be buried in New Orleans, where Parsons had never even lived. Anyway, that's why Graham Parsons is forever associated with Joshua Tree. Now that the sun has set, it's not quite so hot out here. It's 94. That was a little humid. Can you see that there? That's a tortoise burrow. Read in the news last week that the tortoises being moved for the expansion of the Marine Corps base won't mate anymore. They've been traumatized. Here's an idea. Don't move the tortoises. Leave them where they are. Let's go up here. Another one of these illegal campfire rings. We're always clearing. Oh, look, some new graffiti. I kind of think the devil might want some literate followers, don't you think? Should be able to spell. You need to spell before you can do spells. I realize that is unfair to pagans. That's why I don't say such things in polite company. Polite pagan company. Yeah, what's that guy doing driving up here? And we caught a couple of bozos up here the other day. They claimed they were working for Caltrans. So after work, they figured they'd just drive into a nature preserve. On to the boulders. After doing donuts and the dirt road. Grown men. Physically, anyway. Take a look here on your right. All these little wooden stakes seem to be about every six or eight feet, fairly randomly spaced, as far as I can tell. Now, a few months ago, or a couple of, uh, what do you call them? Goth, goth kids out here. And they were taking pictures of these 
wooden stakes in the dirt. I asked them why, and they said for Instagram. I said, do you know they're just six-inch pieces of wood? One of them looked at me and said, that's the same size as vampire stakes. But we welcome everyone here, as long as you don't drive your trucks onto the boulders. Now we'll just cross through the wash here, and I do advise you to be mindful of the rattlesnakes. Hard to see at night. make our announcements because we are coming to the end of another week of Desert Oracle Radio and we do very much appreciate you listening and tuning in on Z107.7 FM in the high desert and for subscribing to the podcast of the broadcast on iTunes just search for Desert Oracle Radio and you click the button that says subscribe every week you'll get the new episode it'll just appear on your phone like a ghost desert oracle radio is brought to you by desert oracle the pocket-sized field guide to the vast and intriguing american desert you can subscribe to this as well but this will cost you 25 dollars money well spent Send a check or money order to Desert Oracle, Post Office Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California. You can also subscribe at the website. It is called DesertOracle.com. We also keep a list of the music that we use on the broadcast Speaking of, our theme music was composed by Pierre G. Langer. If you find yourself feeling a little drained by the heat, take solace. The autumn is only 88 days away. And then about a month or so after that, it'll start to cool down. Remember, summer is the annual price of admission for living in the desert. And we will be back next Friday at 10 p.m. You can write to us. The email address is radio at desertoracle.com. Remember to drink plenty of water. Make sure your dogs have plenty of water. Try to keep the scorpions outside where they belong. And good night from the voice of the desert. (laughs) 